Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Daniel Asia. He is music professor at University of Arizona, where he also directs the American Culture and Ideas Initiative. He edited The Future of High Culture in America and now has a new book, uh, a collection of pieces entitled Observations on Music, Culture, and Politics. That's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Asia. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. First, let me, let me go back to the, uh, a term in your previous book, high culture. Now, that's an unpopular term in academia today, isn't it? Uh, yes, it most certainly is. Um, apparently, one isn't supposed to make any judgments, and one isn't supposed to um, make any hierarchies in our current culture. Um, I consider that, a, uh, I use the word advisedly, but a somewhat dangerous uh, situation and a dangerous way of approaching things. It, it seems to me, particularly in the university, uh, where kids who come in have four years in which to learn and rack up huge debts while doing it, uh, that we have an obligation to help them work their way through all of the information that's uh, available to them. And that means making some tough decisions about what's important and what isn't important something that we've been doing for a long time in academia and certainly doing in the culture generally. And um, I'm, I'm concerned when that doesn't happen that uh, we have real troubles. What, what do they think is going to happen if you maintain a distinction between high culture and, well, the old, the old distinction was actually a tripartite thing, right? High culture, popular culture, and mass culture. And popular culture and mass culture were were distinct, and maybe maybe I'll come back to that. But what what is what do they what do your colleagues, our colleagues, think is going to happen if you say the reserve this distinction? High culture is different. I think it's it's um, a matter of what is rampant now in the university, which is politics. Um, and it also, for better or worse, and I obviously think worse in this case, goes back, I think, to a legacy of the 60s. Um, and I uh, am not pleased with my generation. I'm, I'm part of that. Um, it's really a trivialization of experience and knowledge, which is to say, I think baby boomers assume that anything that they liked was therefore important. And particularly in the realm of music, um, their tastes have not changed. 
which is to say you, you make the distinction between popular and mass culture. Let's just talk about popular culture uh, for a moment. Popular culture seems to me to be something that is generally part of our adolescent and perhaps into our, our 20s experiences. It's those things that matter to us at a very crucial time in our lives uh, where we're beginning to separate from parents, from family, and to make our own judgments. Um, this was certainly of the swing band era, the big bands, uh, earlier jazz, and then, of course, popular music of the 60s and into the 70s. And uh, that music was experienced at seminal times in people's lives. I have no qualms with that. I like the Beatles. I like the Beach Boys. I like the Kingston Trio. But at a certain point, then you say, okay, this is nice. Now, what's a little bit more serious? What gives me greater nourishment? And when you do that, then you have to, one, seek the past. You have to look at the traditions of of the arts, and in this case, I'm talking about music specifically. And then you have to tie yourself to that tradition in some respect and say, gee, now what can I add to it? Uh, I'm a composer, so um, I uh, wish to see the tradition continue and to further it. I don't want to break it. I don't want to stop it. And right now we have a generation, probably the second or third generation, whose connections to that tradition are even more enfeebled than they were 50 years ago. I'll have one final thing to that. And that is uh, 30 years ago or so, I was composed in residence with the Phoenix Symphony. And when people would come to me and say, so Dan, how do I listen to this new music that's being presented? And I'd say, well, do you like some Stravinsky? Do you like some Leonard... Bernstein? Do you like Copeland? And they'd say, yeah. I'd say, well, it's not much different than that at all. It has all of the same rhythms, much of the same language, maybe a little bit further evolved in some respects. Well, now if you ask students who come to campus and say, hey, you ever heard of Stravinsky or Beethoven or Mozart? They'll say, well, I remember there was a movie about a dog named Beethoven, but that's pretty much it. So you can't even make the association with those composers because they are they are completely uh, anonymous to the new generation. They've never heard the names and they've never heard a piece of the music. I don't think a lot of young people realize, maybe old people don't remember, just how prevalent classical music was in, in popular culture, mass culture. I mean, Hollywood... Hollywood film scores were written by people like Bernard Herrmann and Max Steiner who were steeped in, in classical music and they were pulling little riffs out of classical music all the time. You know, cartoons had classical music in them and uh, it, it, was, it was just sort of part of the air that a lot of, a lot of kids would, would, would hear. No, no question about it. Um... Uh, Hollywood had the greatest or some of the best composers uh, and the great composers who came out of Europe at the time of World War II and the Holocaust and managed to get to these shores. Um, you mentioned a couple. There, there are many, many more like uh, Rotza, for example. Uh, and then, of course, people here, Bernard Herrmann, um, uh, Korngold, I mean, Korngold was one of the biggest composers in all of Europe. 
He was considered a child prodigy, almost on the order of a Mozart. His uh, his work was played over and over again at nauseum in uh, Middle Europe before the war. And then he got here. He displayed all those talents in in uh, in the movie world, hmm. uh, while being completely unknown in this country as a concert composer. And then after World War II, of course, never played. Why? Because of the hegemony of the avant-garde of Boulez and Stockhausen, for whom someone like Korngold uh, was anathema because he represented the old school. And they simply wanted a complete break. So you're absolutely right. Now, in our country, in the United States, I mean, the 50s and 60s were the middle brow period. You know, my wife talks about getting to go in on Saturday morning and hearing the Bernstein children's concerts with the New York Philharmonic. Um, uh, you you know, Daniel, sister, I, did... I even remember from my childhood those concerts that Bernstein did, and he's, he's, he's running these kids through Wagner and all, all kinds. I mean, <laughs> the entire nation tuned in to those children's concerts. Exactly. <laughs> Look, they were, let's be honest. They were children's concerts, but they were also great for adults. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah. they're absolutely some of the best uh, music education around, bar none. Uh, so you bet. I mean, when my sister went to college six years before I did, what were people listening to? They were listening to uh, Glenn Gould play Bach Goldberg variations, right? That was the big album. That's, mm. that's what kids were listening to in college. Well, that changed rather drastically with the... Um, uh, the myopic sense of, of my generation turning inwards and rejecting that completely for the um, uh, for, for for popular music and its its um, anti-establishment uh, position. Yeah. Now you begin in the book by asking how Western classical music is faring in higher education. What's your answer? Well, my answer is that it's not faring very well. Um, again, amidst the uh, the evening of all things, classical music is now seen as simply one music, uh, comparable to Irish fiddle music, to klezmer music, um, to any other folk music. Now, I I'm going to differentiate here and say I've got no problem if you want to treat uh, other high culture music on a similar basis as Western music. I might include among that uh, gamelan music of Indonesia or um, Indian uh, classical music also. But guess what? In those cultures, they study their music, that music as their high culture. So in the United States, it seems to me to make good sense that we would support and want to teach uh, music of Western civilization. Now, I'll, I'll add also, why is it that music of the West has overwhelmed the world through its popular music form? It's because Western music has something that no other music in the world has. And that's something called counterpoint and harmony. It's one of those things that Charles Murray identified as a meta idea, something that changed people's perceptions of what an art form could be or what a particular locus of imagination and knowledge could be. And that's true of, of music of the West. Um, so the idea that we do not want to teach this, that it's on the same par as Irish folk music or um, pan music that you'd find in Trinidad or popular music of the last 50 years, I simply find noxious. 
um, and why you would want to throw that out uh, simply seems to me to make absolutely no sense. So what we have now, by the way, in most universities, I'm sure you're aware, is there's no core curriculum anymore. You provide students with a panoply of courses and say, here, darlings, take anyone you want if you want to study uh, the history of rock and roll, which is uh, the history of 50 years, be my guest. You can do that instead, of course, of uh, becoming familiar with music of the West, which goes back about what, maybe 1700 years, if we want to go back to the beginnings of Gregorian chant. I would certainly say that you want to encourage students and all people to look at that August lengthy tradition and and come to grips with it. You, you know, the high point, it seems, of, of classical music in, in America as, as being such a force in American culture, I, I'd put it somewhere in the mid-20th century. I, you know, when Texaco started sponsoring those, uh, those Met broadcasts and, and uh, you, you had Toscanini leading the, the NBC you know, the symphony that had, uh, those were some of the best musicians in the world, weren't they? Absolutely no question about it. A lot of them refugees, correct? The sure, many, many refugees who came here and found a home in America. Uh, Now, the only problem or difficulty I might have at least or a quibble with is that, um, as Joe Horowitz tells us, what what Toscanini did is he, he somewhat locked us into the greatest pieces um, and was reluctant somehow to uh, take it from there and move the tradition forward. Mm-hmm. Having said that, did did he it, he didn't he didn't he wanted to stay away from modernism? Is that he he didn't do a lot. It was Kusevitsky up in Boston who really did much more with American composers. Although I'm going to say, in Toscanini's defense, he heralded uh, Samuel Barber's music, one of the greatest American composers of the 20th century. Uh, while chided by some of his contemporaries, like Elliot Carter, for supposedly having his head somewhat in the past, yeah. it simply ain't the case, as far as I'm concerned. I think Barber's, uh, having done now a festival of the music of Barber in Britain, I can say there's some simply extraordinary music there. Yeah. And that's true also of the American symphonists of the middle part of the century that you that you mentioned that include uh, Bernstein, Peter Menon, uh, Schumann, uh, David Diamond. I mean, the, uh, and, and obviously along with with Copland. Um, so these are great composers whose music should be played. I mean, one one of the things that I think is problematic right now is that it sure would be nice if we could start identifying an American canon, but that's incredibly retrogressive in, mm-hmm. in, in our time. But it's only to say, shouldn't every American uh, symphony be playing a steady diet of the greatest pieces of the Americas uh, that becomes part of our legacy in the same way that the European composers are part of the European legacy? There's enough great music there that every American symphony should be playing so that their audiences get to know their own music. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy. 
all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Was that time, you know, 60 years ago, you mentioned Bernstein, and mm-hmm. you, know, you, you had all these, in Toscanini, you had all these larger-than-life conductors with Carrion mm-hmm. and, and before, a little before him, Ferd Wangler and, and even you know, George Zell. Was, was, the, was the maestro a major part of the centrality of classical music in America? Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And unfortunately, the maestro syndrome, you might say, or the superstar performer, in some way overrode um, the importance of the music they were playing, and therefore the role of the composer, both historically and in the present time. In other words, as as a living composer, I have to... To, to sell the people on the fact that this is a living art in the same way that you go to an art gallery to see the greatest painters of the time and the greatest photographers of the time. And you go to movies to see what, if there's some, if there are any good, any good ones out there to see, to see what people are doing. And you go to live theater, you want to go to concerts where there are living composers who are speaking to you about their experience in our own time and telling us something about that. And that's that's certainly a problem for us. That's that's a problem of the classical music industry, in 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 my view, and something that needs yeah. to be fought a little bit. One, one, actually, a conductor. I I I'm just a very small amateur conductor. I I asked about you know the, those those giants of old, and if if one could uh, be, and she she said. No, no. I mean, I mean, Toscanini used to scream and have tantrums, right? Throw things at people, <laughs> and and you know the the sort of the the dictatorial, tyrannical figure who maybe that was necessary in in some cases to get to get these great performances. You just can't be that way anymore. I think that's the case. I don't think anybody, no orchestra, no musicians union will put up with that kind of abuse anymore. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to say I'm not sure it's required also to produce yeah. great results. I mean, Claudio um, Abado, he wasn't like that, right? No. But, but no, he got, he, he's one of the greats. He, he's... Sure, sure. And, and, and Lenny harangued his musicians sometimes. You know, he'd yell at him and say, look, you know, I know you'd rather be playing poker right now as you do during your break than, uh, <laughs> or cards rather than playing music. But let's concentrate, gentlemen. And, and, and by the way, though, you know, orchestra musicians, they're pretty savvy these days also. They don't need to be berated. They're playing, you know, 52 weeks a year or 48 if they take their month's vacation. Yeah. You know, the yeah. quality of playing, you mentioned it as being great 60 years ago. It's nowhere near what it is now. I mean, huh. the level of playing is uh, technically is absolutely extraordinary. It, it, problem, it, it, far from far from New York City and and uh, Chicago, oh, it's it's all place, over. Every place, every place, because music, look, there are so many good musicians who are trained every everywhere now. Yeah. Orchestras are, are just playing beyond the capabilities of any orchestras of the past. Now, what they might not play with is the same kind of feeling 
and individuality. Hmm. What I said was, don't don't forget, technically, they're in far, far superior, whether in terms of emotional content and the capability of communicating that, that's another matter. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you note in one of your essays that technology, while it's expanded, the, the listening audience and, and the possibilities for classical music, it has actually altered uh, in the minds of the young live performance. And there may be, there's a loss there. Well, what do you mean by that? How so? Well, what I mean is listening to any music, it seems to me, in a sterile, solitary environment is very, very different than what one actually experiences, the kind of communication that one gets in a concert hall. It's also to say that music has pretty much always been an I-thou experience in terms of Martin Buber's comments on our relationship that we have with individuals rather than an I-it experience that there's something holy about um, the musical endeavor. There always has been. Um, I mean, if you want to say that it's worse shamanistic in some sense or, or, uh, or tribal, but it brings people together. I know there's noise, and I know, you know people are, are unwrapping candies and all of that stuff, and people are heading out to get to the bathroom in the middle of a piece and all that. Even so... There's something about those live performers doing it on the spot and making a connection to you, the listener, and all of the listeners around you who are hearing something at the same time. I love CDs. Don't get me wrong. I love CDs because I can listen to a piece over and over again or a bunch of times and get to really know it in a way that nobody could in the past before this technology was available. I mean, you know, uh, in the 19th century, how often did people get to hear a Beethoven symphony? Unless you were living in Berlin or living in Vienna or someplace else. I mean, you didn't get to. So the fact that we have it is absolutely marvelous. But I don't think it can ever take the place of that communal experience where music, again, brings us together in our commonality as human beings witnessing something marvelous that changes us hmm. you know what can parents do to expose their kids kids to classical music without without turning them off um i don't think kids uh would be turned off the first thing is of course something that doesn't happen much now is kids should learn instruments <laughs> they should yeah. learn to play them. They should learn to play when every kid should play an instrument like we did back in the in the 50s and 60s. Because well, Dan- Daniel, every ex- I mean just about every elementary school in 5th grade, I remember all the kids were had music class. Music classes were actually very strong in in elementary schools. I, I actually think that No Child Left Behind did a lot of damage to a lot of those music programs, but it seemed like 5th grade Everyone was expected to pick up something and participate in music class. Exactly. Exactly. And we unfortunately have lost that in our culture. We've lost it in our educational system. 
Uh, actually, I'm involved uh, right now where uh, I have a teach a class that's called Human Achievement and Innovation in the Arts uh, at the University of Arizona. And about 500 kids take it. And it's a pan arts class, so we teach the entire history of visual art, the entire history of Western music, dance, all within the framework of the philosophy of beauty, which goes back to your very opening question, which is, you know, what's the problem in university? Well, this this sort of provides a, a place where people can get that and say, oh, yeah, here's something that everybody's agreed is beautiful. I should at least listen to it before I reject it out of hand. Okay, Daniel, I, I've got to interrupt you. I have to ask a question. Okay, you... You've got you got five hundred undergraduates in in there. Uh, what classical music do they really do they really respond to? Oh, what do they really like? You know, you know, it's different from student to student. You know, some of them might actually figure out that this Gregorian chant stuff is kind of cool. Hmm. And uh, some of them love Mozart. Some of them love Beethoven. Some of them love uh, Palestrina. I mean, this is new to them, but they find a way into it. And then we bring them up to Stravinsky and Wagner and, uh, and then even to Steve Reich and or Asia. Uh, it's teaching them to be open to different possibilities and to welcome new experiences. That's hard for adolescents who are coming into college to be open to new experience. But look, and what I tell them at the class is very simple. I say, you know, 20 percent of you are going to really get this and love it. And probably 60 percent of you are going to say, yeah, OK, that was cool. That's OK. And I'm on to back to Lady Gaga. 20 percent are going to flunk out because that's kind of the flunk out rate. And I tell them. You know what my real hope is? That among that 60% of you, in 20 years, you go to a concert or you go to a museum and you look at something or you hear something and you say, oh, that's what that guy Asia was talking about. Now I get it. Now I get it. Because also, you have to remember, what if they don't like something now? Okay, big deal. Don't we change our attitudes towards things? We grow, we learn, we become different people as we grow older. And my hope is that I provide a certain sense of excitement, and uh, either they find it of interest or they don't. But you you sow some seeds for the future, also, for all of these students. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that that orchestras all across the country have superior playing. Uh, are they surviving? Are they thriving commercially in cities like your own Tucson? Uh, yeah, we're doing just fine, I think. You know, every organization like this could use more money. Ticket sales, of course, don't provide uh, more than maybe 60 or 70 percent of their budgets. It's a, this is a problem in America in particular where we think that if something doesn't make money, it's not worthy of survival. Uh, in other words, where the monetary equation overwhelms the aesthetic one. Having said that, we've got a really fine orchestra here in Tucson. We've got a wonderful young conductor. 
the problem, of course, that we have is what all orchestras are finding, which is their audiences are growing older. And the question is, will younger people replace them? We'll find out. I mean, we're right in the situation now where the question is, will baby boomers who are in their 60s and 70s go to the orchestra or not? Or are they going to go to the Eagles uh, reunion tour? Or are they going to go see uh, the Stones, you know, with Mick Jagger up there with his walker? What a bore. I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, I, I, ju- I can't tell you. I can't tell you. I'm ho- <laughs> They're reliving I'm their youth. It, it's it's not about experiencing I, I, the Stones today. It's a, they're reliving their youth. And I understand that, but you can't be forever young. You can't be forever youthful. Y- y- and yes. it's time at some point to grow up. Y- y- you're wrong, Daniel. We can be forever young. We can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then you're in better shape than I. My knees are starting to hurt and all the rest of it. So you Well, uh, look... Come on, there's something wrong if your musical tastes are the same at age 18. Uh, No, no. Actually, if your musical tastes are the same at age 23 that they were at age 18, something didn't happen that should have happened. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And And that's where we are in the culture. Can we make that happen? Are we going to be able to teach our students? I mean, look, I really started to take music seriously when I got to college. And I know a a number of my friends who said my intellectual life really began. I didn't understand the the depth of what was available to students. What was available to me is being part of this great thing called Western civilization. And the question is, are we going to bring that to our students now who then, of course, move into the culture and move that larger culture along? Or are we going to treat them like kids and not open up their minds to the greatness in art, dance, and music? Uh, l- l- I hope that we'll get back to that. L- last question, Dan. Dan yeah. Last question. Uh, is this woke revolution movement uh, going to damage classical music, do you think? Oh, it already has, and it will continue to do so. Um, Look, we already have the problem of uh, record companies who have essentially immortalized everything that exists in the past uh, and every composer, whether of moment or not. So now we have the next iteration of that, which is, We do not care about the quality of the music that we're going to present. We are going to present it purely on a basis of sex, gender, and color. Now, this is not to say there aren't wonderful women composers, there aren't wonderful black composers, Chinese, etc. I didn't say that. I would not want to be misquoted. I am only saying that should not be the basis by which one judges what music is to be played or not to be played. I'm all for finding the music of those groups that I've just mentioned, where the music really matters. I mean, as I tell my students, I don't care if somebody who writes a great piece of music is green, uh, half, half green, half purple, four foot two, uh, um, mixed answer, etc. I want If it's a great piece of music, that's the important aspect. Come on. Let's let's tackle the music. So 
but the problem, so that's our problem right now is, is uh, we're going to be in, in a time where it's already complicated to get people into the concert hall, to get young people into the concert hall. If you don't present them really good music, then even more so, why should they come back? The book is Observations on Music, Culture, and Politics. Professor Asia, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.